Welcome to Disputed, a Norton Rose Fulbright podcast. We're your hosts, Andrew McComb from Toronto and Elsa Bloomer from Calgary. In the past two years, dealing with sudden changes and disruptions along the supply chain has become part and parcel of doing business. But in having to pivot quickly and make adjustments to address short-term bottlenecks, companies have little time to assess the longer-term liability risks. As well, companies also now have to manage social liability issues in addition to the legal liability risk. So in this discussion, we talk about some key issues our lawyers are seeing arise when businesses are forced to make adjustments in their supply chains and how these risks can be managed, from recall plans to force majeure clauses, indemnities, and due diligence strategies. We welcome back Randy Sutton, a previous guest speaker in our Class Action Trends episode. Randy is the global co-head of our Life Sciences and Healthcare Industry Group, and he has represented clients in commercial, class action, environmental, franchise, and product liability and recall matters across Canada. Joining Randy is Caitlin Smiley of Council in our Vancouver office, and Caitlin's practice focuses on complex commercial litigation, class actions, product liability, securities litigation, and insurance coverage matters. Randy, Caitlin, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Okay, so supply chain disputes, supply chain disruptions. Let's start by setting the scene. This is obviously a very common term that businesses are going to be familiar with in the past two years. But from what you've seen across your practices, how have developments in the past two years impacted supply chains for Canadian businesses? Well, why don't I start on just sort of what has occurred, and then maybe, Caitlin, you can talk about the consequences of that. Uh, In terms of what we've seen in the past couple of years, supply chain issues have arisen from, first off, the pandemic. I think 75% of companies have reported supply chain disruptions due to issues around COVID-19. We're seeing, and particularly in the area that I work in, in life sciences, you know, about 72% of um, U.S. entities actually import uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients from outside of, of the United States, for example. So as borders have closed, as, as um, jurisdictions have shut down, you've seen significant issues there. Political issues, obviously, Russia-Ukraine conflict is creating issues. We're seeing, you know, right here in Canada, extreme weather events, and then also significant rise in cybercrime, um, cybersecurity issues, which have given rise to issues such as the colonial pipeline shutdown and those types of, again, supply chain disruptions. And I think, you know, in terms of thinking about the supply chain and, and how complicated it is, one of the comments that I've heard um, one person was that, you know, it takes 30,000 parts to make a car, uh, but if you're missing one part, you don't make that car. Um, and so from that perspective, the disruption in the supply chain is significant, um, and these events certainly have have given rise to issues. And, and Caitlin, maybe you want to speak about the consequences of that. Yeah, thanks, Randy. Uh, so we've seen that businesses and their suppliers have both had to make sudden adjustments to existing supply chains, finding other suppliers, other sources for components, diversifying their geographies, um, trying to bring supply chains back home uh, and repatriating those where they can, looking for cost savings by acquiring lower tier vendors and substituting products. And and all of those come with uncertainties as companies are trying to adapt quickly to unanticipated uh, and unforeseen changes in the global environment in the past few years. Mm -hmm. And so 
with that, with all the changes that you are referring to, the adjustments that are having to be made, uh, different uh, companies having to source different ingredients, like you mentioned, around in the life sciences sector, um, what legal claims is this? are these giving rise to? What are the nature of claims that you are seeing and the types of supply chain liabilities that are cropping up as a result of these adjustments? So we're seeing those disputes prop up in a couple different areas. First are obviously when you have these supply relationships that are existing, you often have contracts that are governing those and where a supplier isn't able to fulfill their obligations under a contract, that's resulting in disputes. We're also seeing that you know, those, those contract disputes are uh, arising where quite often you'll have exclusivity agreements where you may not be able to step outside of those relationships to source ingredients or source components in a more, uh, in, a, in a faster or more reactive way. There may also be intellectual property aspects to some of those uh, disputes and into some of those relationships where you have um, you know, specific suppliers who have specific industrial knowledge or intellectual property knowledge that makes it difficult to find alternatives in the short term. In a non-contract sense, there are obviously issues when you are adapting quickly and finding new suppliers and you may not have the opportunities to uh, do the same degree of due diligence. On the contract disputes that you mentioned, Caitlin, along the supply chain with regards to exclusivity agreements or intellectual property, are we seeing a multi-jurisdictional aspect to those claims too? I'm, I'm assuming that contracts in supply chains aren't all consistent when it comes to governing law. So are clients experiencing difficulties with determining what jurisdiction those contract disputes are heard in? Absolutely. There's jurisdictional issues arising in there also, depending on where the issue is, where the disruption is within the supply chain, there can be problems with those contracts not being back to back. You may have the end manufacturer who needs a component that is several steps down uh, the, the chain that isn't being delivered and you know, their contractual relationship is with their direct supplier who then in turn is, is suing their direct supplier and those contracts may not have consistent jurisdiction clauses. So it's not a matter of simply um, being able to sue in one location and drag everyone in uh, because you're several stages down in the contractual relationship and those contracts aren't necessarily back to back or, or mirroring each other with respect to jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And so, Randy, turning to the second area of liability, Caitlin mentioned the class action risk. So what are you seeing crop up in your practice in that area? Yeah, I mean, I think we've in, seen the past few years a number of class actions, particularly in the area of, of recall, where there's been issues um, about, you know, the quality of the product. And so certainly to the extent that people are moving to different suppliers, um, they've not properly vetted them. There may be situations where a particular batch has been sourced from a different supplier. They don't have quality control. Um, I think you potentially will see class action risk arising from that uh, and issues around that. So certainly that's one area and that then gives rise to both uh, recall claims and product liability claims. Um, You know, from a recall perspective, again, one of the issues that you've got to think about is does your recall plan, which you might have brought in three or four years ago when, you know, recalls were sort of the issue of the day because of amendments, does that still work? Do you still know who the suppliers are? Are you able to source back specific products to specific suppliers to understand how you sort of want to ring fence your recall 
um, when regulators are asking, who'd you get this from? Are you able to identify that? So again, that's a, also from a recall perspective. Can you deal with a recall effectively and efficiently if you change suppliers, if there's been disruptions and you're either you know, not aware of them or you're not able to sort of track back exactly where the products came from? And that is a, a significant issue, um, particularly across borders where you often have you know, cross-border recalls and you're dealing with those types of issues. And I just want to uh, dig a bit deeper on that because supply chain disruption it has been a part of business, right, for many, many years. It's not just been in the, in the past two years that we're talking about. And presumably recall issues and having um, a solid recall plan in place and all those communications along the supply chain it has always been important. So my question is, what in particular is different about the past two years when it comes to dealing with product liability claims and recall issues along the supply chain what new dynamic are companies having to deal with now well i think a little bit of is is in terms of knowledge of where your product is coming from you know going again right up the chain to the in the in the car example the thirty thousand products that sort of come down to make the car do you know where all those products are coming from or have your suppliers source them from a different product different supplier um, in the context of your supplier have they had to put in a different ingredient because they couldn't source an ingredient that gives rise to a different issue as as it relates to the product itself. Um, you know, and even just sort of the more practical realities, you know, if all, all of the information is now coming in electronic form as opposed to hard copy waybills and, and documentation, have you retained that somewhere if you need to access that for the purpose of a recall? Um, you know, when you're doing a recall, if everyone's working remotely, do you have the team available um, to be responding and, and how do you deal with that? So again, I think the issue in the past couple of years is that there's been a lot of disruption. And so the existing recall plans and practices that you might have vetted and done three or four years ago, um, they simply might not be um, reactive at this point. And I think there's also uncertainty as to where you, your supplier may have got stuff on the supply chain, um, which is critical to a recall because you need to understand, you know, what is the issue um, and how do you identify what products that you're selling are subject to that issue. And if, if you can't identify that uh, because you don't know who your suppliers are or they've modified their supply arrangements um, unbeknownst to you because of the pandemic, um, there's just a lot more fluidity and uncertainty, I think, around the process. Going back to something that Caitlin was talking about on the contract side, I mean, and to your point, Randy, about people now needing to keep a very close eye on what their supply chain looks like and what their relationships look like and how well they're documenting everything. I mean, parties who rely on a supply chain put a great deal of effort into figuring out what their contingency plan is going to be if something goes wrong. Um, and I'm thinking about force majeure clauses and what value they have in these circumstances. I mean, it's a little bit more than cliche now to refer to the current situation as unprecedented times, but with so many overlapping disruptive forces, what do we think of the value of force majeure clauses and how are parties to a potential supply chain dispute able to take advantage of them or defend against a party taking advantage of them? I would say just in terms of force majeure clauses generally, I think it's it's one of those things that as, as drafters of contracts and even litigators, you just never really focused on. Um, you know, it sort of was in there as a boilerplate. I think what we're seeing now is that there's complications around them. What exactly is a force majeure? The Canadian courts, for example, apply a high threshold when determining the applicability of the clause. Um, and there's questions as to what actually gives rise to that. Um, so what you want to think about from a risk 
management is what constitutes force majeure? Can you identify specific circumstances and, and provide more detail around that particular clause as opposed to relying on simply the boilerplate language that's specific to your supply chain and specific to your business? What, what I've seen just in my practice is there a lot of businesses recognize that everyone's struggling. They're trying to work together collaboratively um, to deal with what is unforeseen. Um, again, there are contractual rights and remedies that people can rely on, but I, in my practice, I've seen people try to negotiate and deal with things in an amicable way. Um, but again, in the future, who knows if that will be the case. And I think certainly um, if there was more certainty in your clauses, um, it would allow people to be more um, able to deal with things more effectively in terms of a, a dispute, or at least having some more clarity so that you can negotiate from a, a stronger position if that issue arises. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like, I, I mean, I'm thinking of the analogy of in, in the M&A context, uh, material adverse effect clauses that are now sort of more commonly consistently building in COVID-19 language into the disruptions that are possibly contemplated. And, and just to your point, being really clear about what we're thinking about when we think about force majeure, as opposed to just handing down some provision that's been in a hundred contracts prior. And I, I think to Randy's point that parties aren't necessarily relying on their strict contractual rights at this point, because it's a long process. Whereas companies are wanting to, when there is a supply chain disruption, deal with it in a way that's quick, that means that they can solve the problem in a proactive way through negotiations and get the product back to market. They're in a better position and, and they can sort down out their contractual rights and remedies and damages down the road. But having that more constructive approach in the moment seems to be what companies are doing and for understandable reasons. I think that makes total sense. And most of the contracts or, or many of the contracts that would be in play probably have some balancing features that can be traded off against each other. Like if there's exclusivity or near exclusivity in a supplier arrangement, obviously that goes out the window when your supplier can't be providing you with product. And so that's something that can be traded back and forth and, and new, new relationships can be restructured. So then what else, what else can Canadian businesses do to plan for to try to reduce the risk of litigation or regulatory action? From my perspective, it's, it's understanding um, your supply chain. It's understanding the regulations in the various jurisdictions that you may be governed by. Um, it's thinking about and, and working through and really understanding where you get your products from in terms of regulation around um, environmental issues, social issues and governance issues. And it's just important to understand what your supply chain looks like in that context um, and, and doing the due diligence up front um, and making sure that when your supplier says X, it's accurate um, and you can make that statement and, and justify that statement. On the due diligence point, what is the scope of that duty to carry out due diligence along your supply chain? Because we can think of duty in, in the legal sense of to take all reasonable steps to understand where you're getting your products from. But with um, the added layer of ESG and uh, corporate su supply chain responsibility, is a new dimension to that level of due diligence now. And so the boundaries between um, social responsibility and legal liability aren't as clear anymore. So what's your sense on and on the scope of reasonable due diligence that companies should be doing along the supply chain and what does that actually look like in practice? I think it's going to look different for different companies and for different entities. If you are a company that is you know, manufacturing a single product, 
and you it has five inputs and you know those five inputs are, are coming from you know suppliers that you have individual contracts with the expectation on you to actually carry out more extensive due diligence on those five entities will be greater than if you are a retail location that sells tens of thousands of products that have any number of inputs. So it, it really is going to be circumstance specific. I mean, picking up on that point, I mean, so you can see parties putting in the effort and, and that scalable effort, like you say, Kaylin, that, that's appropriate for the circumstances. That makes total sense. And I bet a lot of that's done you know, at an RFP stage, if you're looking at multiple suppliers, you're getting commitments from who your suppliers are as to how they do business and, and you're putting in the work. But of course, things will go wrong. And, um, you know, eventually that may end up landing at the foot of the person at the end of the supply chain. Um, what kind of other protections can you have beyond uh, just putting in the work and the diligence in the event that something goes wrong up to your, up your supply chain with an ESG type issue uh, that has people looking to you for, for some kind of compensation? So there's a couple of ways you can address it. One of them is through contractual indemnities. So again, this is at the, at the upfront stage when you are you know, doing your due diligence, you're entering into your, into your contract, you're dealing with force majeure clauses. But having an effective indemnity provision is important both from a contractual standpoint as well as from a due diligence standpoint, because an indemnity provision can be beautifully drafted, wonderfully enforceable, but it's only as good as the assets and the solvency of the company that's owing the indemnity. So doing some due diligence on the you know, financial wherewithal and ability to fulfill this indemnity obligation, whether it is a hold harmless, whether it is an obligation to defend the company that liability is being sought from down, down the chain, uh, whether there are personal guarantees that should be in place, depending on the nature of, of the company. But even if the financial wherewithal is great when you're entering into the relationship, the picture may change significantly, especially if this company is in a situation where it is no longer supplying the product and the component that you need for the ultimate product. So then we're looking at things like insurance uh, and whether the company that owes the indemnity obligation has appropriate insurance in place, whether they're obliged to have insurance in place, either for your benefit or insurance that will respond uh, if they're being called upon to fulfill the indemnity obligation. And then there's just insurance that the company at the end of the chain can have in place to help respond to some of these uh, complaints and into these liability claims that they may be facing. And that's why it's critically important to document your due diligence. I mean, if, if we're at this stage, obviously there's, you know, media attention and there's public relations and there's customer issues that we're having to deal with, but best position the defense of the company at the end of the day, documenting the due diligence, making it more than just a, a checklist as part of any corporate due diligence, but actually giving some meaning to the questions that you're asking there, to the level of scrutiny that you're applying to those responses, um, you know, giving it some sort of air of reality check. Mm -hmm. well, and when you're doing your due diligence, to what extent do you need to understand the differences between uh, different markets that you are um, operating in and make an attempt to bring some consistency back to the domestic market that you're selling your product in? 
I mean, I think the regulatory standard in your home jurisdiction is the one that I, I think you want to focus on because that's the sort of standard of care that a regulator is going to expect, particularly in terms of the supply of products. Um, so I don't think it's sufficient for you to say, well, we, you know, we didn't think that we needed to meet a standard here because that's not the case in another jurisdiction. Um, and so that's why I think it's important to understand what the regulatory standards are in that jurisdiction, how they compare to your own. Um, and if there are meaningful gaps, then making sure that the supplier knows that, you know, we, we don't rely on that and this is what we need you to establish and you know we have a, a third party who does testing and unless you can comply with that testing and show us that it meets the standard that we need to um, to comply with you know we're not going to buy it um, and there you know one of the benefits in in this space is that there are lots of international standards now that are coming forward um, lots of cooperation in terms of, of trying to develop regulatory standards so that hopefully you know if it meets a certain standard it will meet a standard globally um, and I think that is helpful, particularly where you've got products coming from a bunch of different countries. And so if you can all sort of point to that one globalized standard and say, this is what it needs to do and this is what it needs to meet, um, then that will help you um, dealing with any issues and making sure that you've got the, the compliant product. Mm -hmm. We have several jurisdictions now, like the UK, um, Netherlands, Australia, and Canada soon to implement modern slavery legislation. And it, is, it seems to me that you, we have several different laws that companies could be trying to deal with in managing um, or trying to comply with uh, human rights due diligence uh, legislation. Well, we see in the same way that we might have um, uh, consistent standards for uh, food and pharmaceutical um, products, will we see that perhaps in the human rights context or are we still going to be dealing with multiple um, modern slavery regimes in, in different jurisdictions? I mean, I think it's much, it's too, too early probably to say it. I think, I think the challenge, you know, and when, when you look at sort of regulatory issues, uh, you know, we even look at them in Canada is there's always sort of the little change in the wording in one province versus another province. And, you know, does it fall within this category here, or that category there? It, it's hard to come up with harmonized legislation across even Canada. Um, we've seen that in a bunch of different areas. And so whether we can do that globally is, a, is an open question, but I think, from my perspective, you know, the devil often is in the details and there could be subtle variations, which we'll need to ensure, um, you know, we're complying with and we're focusing on. Um, and so I think it will take a long time for there to be an ability for us to say, well, we've got one global standard on those types of issues um, that, that everyone is is complying with. And um, given the world right now and the, the fractured nature of many things, I, th I think it's going to be difficult to bring that that to the fore and get that to the point where we have a, a an international standard on some of those types of issues. And so yeah, I think you'll have to look jurisdiction by jurisdiction. So sometimes we end these uh, episodes by asking our guests to tell, if, tell us if they uh, notice any interesting trends or if they're watching out for anything developing in the law in this area in particular. Is anything you guys want to flag going forward as an area of interest? Um, I think for me, Andrew, the, the key area that we're just seeing is a lot of increased regulation in, in a bunch of different areas. Um, I mean, I, I focus on Health Canada a lot and the number of new initiatives in terms of labeling, in terms of product characteristics, all of that, it just continues to expand. Um, so I think, um, you know, given the issues we've seen um, in terms of disruption, we're seeing issues around, um, you know, potential class actions around recalls, that kind of thing. Um, and as there are more complicated supply chains, you're going to see a lot more regulation in a bunch of different jurisdictions about that. So I would say the trend is just more regulation, 
Um, and I really think businesses need to be aware of what's going on and, and understand the regulations um, and make sure you've got a, a robust compliance system in so that those, those regulations get updated and changed. Um, you're, you're flagging them for your, your business team and, and so they're aware of what's going on. And I think that one of the real areas of, of emerging regulation within Canada is, as Randy touched on earlier, the uh, legislation and the regulations surrounding modern slavery in supply chains. And that's you know something that we see is more advanced in terms of the legislative situation in Europe and, and in uh, other jurisdictions. We are seeing uh, draft legislation that was reintroduced recently in Canada that is touching on this. Uh, so companies staying uh, apprised of their obligations, trying to get ahead of some of the, the potential regulations that may be coming into force in the future by implementing those sorts of considerations into their due diligence now so that they're not needing to revisit and kind of rework the wheel down the road. Um, so keeping an, an eye out for those and making sure, as, as Randy said, that companies are staying on top of the regulatory developments and changes uh, within the various jurisdictions that they operate in. That is a perfect segue because we have episodes in our production schedule doing a deep dive on uh, modern slavery legislation uh, in the future. So that is very exciting and it's a perfect tip off uh, for what we have in the pipeline. But for this conversation, Caitlin, Randy, thank you guys so much for joining us. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Disputed. If you'd like to find out more about this topic or how to contact our guests, please visit nortonrosefulbright.com disputed. Also, if you have any questions, feedback, or topics that you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us at disputed at nortonrosefulbright.com. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to Disputed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.